It was August 1973. <laughs> Seems a long time ago now. And it was the last night of that crusade that Jill chatted me up and <laughs> one thing led to another. <laughs> Great pleasure to be back again with you. And we read this morning from Colossians chapter 2 and from verse 10 through to the end of the chapter. You have been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision with the, by, done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to his cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use, because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And we thank the Lord for his word to us this morning. This whole recognition of the fact that you have been given fullness in Christ is really the key to Christian living. To come to recognize that anything that we have and anything that we are of value to any, anyone else arises from the work of Christ in us is hugely important and of great significance as far as our Christian living and the expression of Christ is concerned. And very often when we come together we forget that we are who we are because of the work which the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross. 
And this passage that we have in front of us really uh, draws together the central teaching of the value of the work of Christ in his death. And I want, with the Lord's help, to uh, try to explore that a little this morning uh, in such a way that the work of the cross might become even more precious to us than perhaps it already is. Whenever you and I think of the cross, we think of the ignominy and, and shame and the suffering and the, the ways in which the Lord Jesus found himself exposed to sinful men and women uh, in the death which he died. But there's much more to the cross than that. And uh, as I said, what I want to explore this morning is, is what the work of the cross actually means, the facts which are related to it and its outworking. And perhaps we could have the text back up again uh, as we look again at verses 10 through 12, just for a moment, and uh, just get into our heads the reality of, of this various these various statements that are made here. Jesus Christ is the head over every power and authority. That's a, a huge statement. And when we recognize that this is what God has done in Christ and through Christ, then it begins to put into perspective the work that he achieves for each of us personally. Christ is the head over every power and authority. So everything that was brought into the world through sin, Christ is now the head of. He has put it away through his death on the cross. And the power of sin has been annulled. It hasn't been destroyed, but it has been annulled in the sense that sin no longer will have dominion over you if you come into the kingdom of Christ and recognize all that he has done for you through his death on the cross. And as you and I begin to recognize that and begin to recognize that his power and authority is absolute, because that's what the statement means, that his power and authority is absolute as far as your life and my life is concerned, and the outworking of it, of the life principle that Christ has brought to us. Now, the word which is used here um, in verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision not made with human hands, means in effect the cutting off of the works of the flesh. You and I do things which are wrong because we are sinful men and women. And you and I have been brought into Christ so that he has laid to rest those things that would normally dominate us. So before you became a Christian, you were dominated by the acts and things that, that you do in the sinful nature, the various ways in which that's expressed, whether it's in jealousy or, or greed or self-interest or whatever. It's, it's all the work of sin and it has dominion until Christ comes into your life. And then Christ has power and authority over all of that and lays it to rest. He annuls its power so that you don't have to live to sin anymore. You can, of course, choose to as a Christian to live under the principles of sinning. But you don't have to because Christ has brought into your life a new principle and has made you alive 
with Christ. You were dead, the scripture says in verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. That's an amazing statement. Before you became a Christian, you were actually dead to God. You didn't know what he was about. You didn't know how he functioned. You didn't know that he cared for you even. But when you became a Christian, suddenly you have a new life and you have a new dimension and are brought into a new realm. And when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, Christ made you alive with Christ. God made you alive with Christ. And the first thing to notice is that such an act is all of God. You had nothing to do with it. God made you alive with Christ. Dead men can't do things. And if we're dead in our sins, we can't regenerate ourselves. But when we come to faith in Christ, God makes us alive with Christ. It's just an amazing transformation. But it's all to do with God. It is what God does in us. Not what we try to do. We don't turn over a new leaf. We don't try to become different people. But having come simply in faith to the Lord Jesus, we discover this transformation. And things that didn't used to be of interest to you are now of interest to you. And God begins to make sense. And you begin to recognize that he's your father and that he really does care for you. And he's made you alive with Christ. So God and Christ are in cooperation in bringing you to new birth. And it's just so amazing. This act is all of God because we were dead but he has made us alive with Christ. And that's the second thing, really. It's in connection with Christ. God can't make us alive apart from the work that the Lord Jesus did on the cross because he died for our sins. He took our place. And he steps into the position of taking sin upon himself on the cross so that God can then forgive you and I on the basis of the fact that Christ has died for our sins. It's interesting, I'm in the spotlight. (laughs) So Christ has died for our sins. And that is the, the whole reality of what's being taught here. Without Christ dying for our sins, there is no possibility that God can forgive our sins. If Christ doesn't die for our sins, there is no possibility that God can forgive our sins. You can try all you like. You can do everything that you think God might want you to do. But it doesn't deal with the basic principle of our sins. So Christ dies for our sin. He takes the punishment for our sin. He takes my place on the cross so that God, as I come into connection with Christ, can forgive me. And that's an amazing thing. 
You know, how can the death of someone more than 2,000 years ago make a personal difference to you and me? Well, it's because his death is, and I use a technical term, efficacious. His death is always effective for the forgiveness of sins, whether you live before Christ or you live after Christ. His death always works because it was death for our sins. And, uh, you know, to, to come into the realization of this, I, I don't know if you can remember the actual time or the day that you, you became a Christian. But if you can, it may have been a, a bit like it was for me. When I suddenly came to an awareness that God forgave my sin because of what Christ did on the cross. And I can remember trying to work it out as an eight-year-old lad what it meant that Christ had died for me. And then I got to the end of myself, as they say, back home, and recognized that I couldn't work it out, but I just had to accept it. Christ died for my sin. It's the most amazing thing. I mean, I was stealing from, from shops when I was six years old. I didn't need anybody to tell me I was sinful. I was lying to my parents before that. I'm not proud of it. It was a fact. Christ died for my sin. Took my place. Made a, a recompense to God through his death. So it's in connection with Christ. So it's an act of God and it's in connection with what Christ has done. Further, it's demonstrated in absolutes. I want you to look at the text here. Uh, God made you alive with Christ, and he's used the, the pronoun you up until now, and then he says this, he forgave us all our sins. Suddenly the pronoun changes. He's not talking about you and you and you. He's talking about us. He forgave us all our sins. This is a, an unconditional remission. And everything that I have ever done, God forgave me in Christ's name because of what he had done. So Christ died for my sins and God forgives us all our sins. There isn't actually anything that you have ever done that God has not forgiven you for. I, I meet daft people English people mainly, but I, I meet daft people all the time who say to me, I can't forgive myself. What's that going to do with anything? You know, enjoy the forgiveness that is in Christ because it's absolute. He's forgiven you all your sins. Doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done, whatever your life has been up until now, it's all gone because Christ has done this which is so absolute and forgiven. Unlike some who say they forgive and can't forget, God forgives and chooses not to remember their sins and iniquities. I will remember no more. So whenever you come to faith in Christ, it's just as if God gives you an absolutely clean slate and the new life that you're given in Christ is given unconditionally. 
You come to faith in him and he forgives you absolutely. All of my sin. But how can he do that? Because God is just. And if I've sinned against God, then I'm answerable to God. Well, look at what it says next. And this is a most interesting verse because it, it uses uh, statements that Paul doesn't use elsewhere. Having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Now, what, what is, the, is the writing which is against us? What writing of God do we have recorded for us in Scripture that is against us? What is the written code? The Ten Commandments plus all the other commandments written with it. But the ten were written by the finger of God, you'll remember, on tablets of stone which Moses received. Just written out. And those things demonstrate, you know, Take the last one, thou shalt not covet. You ever fancy somebody else's house or somebody else's car or somebody else's job? Thou shalt not covet. And these things were written against us. And you'll notice that Paul is absolutely clear here. Having cancelled the written code with the regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, He took it away. You see, the law of God is condemnatory. The law which God has written is that which condemns us because we can't keep it absolutely. Indeed, it was given for that purpose so that men and women would recognize that you can't keep this law. That's why there were sacrifices in the Old Testament. That's why there were sacrifices every day in life in the Old Testament. Because God was going to condemn the whole of the world unless there was a basic sacrifice given in order to make a forgiveness for sins. And all the way through the Old Testament, every time you read of the Passover as being a sacrifice, every time you read of a sin offering as a sacrifice, Every time you're reading of a peace offering, as a sacrifice. Every time, every time, every time to convince men and women of how dreadful sin is and of how far short of God's law we have come. But then there's one sacrifice that comes once and it's the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And not only does he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, but he puts away the principle of law against you and me by the sacrifice of himself. He he nails it to his cross because as he died, as I've already emphasized, he died for our sins. He died for that law which condemned us. He died on the basis of coming under that law himself. Indeed, the scripture says that he was made under the law. The Lord Jesus Christ lived a life which was absolutely perfect as far as the law was concerned. He never sinned. So when he died upon the cross, he was dying or laying down a sinless life. Just laying down a life which had fulfilled absolutely the requirements of the law. 
And so God can forgive us on that basis and say effectively, the law has got no call upon Glasgow. The law's got no call upon Derek. The law's got no call upon Desmond. The law's got no call upon Margaret because the law has been answered by what Christ did. You understand? And this is hugely important. That Christ fulfilled the law absolutely and in laying down a perfect life, he laid to rest the demands of the law upon your, upon your soul, upon your heart. And so the, the scripture says absolutely clearly here, he forgave us all our sin, having cancelled the written code. He made it of no consequence as far as you and I are concerned to come to faith, uh, to faith in him. But then you might say, well, there are other folk that are against it, not as the devil and his minions and so forth and so on. Well, that's the next verse. Having disarmed, do you remember he has authority, he has all power and authority. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle over, of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He destroyed all the opponents that you have, all the accusers that you have, the devil and his minions, the devil and his angels, those who live in another realm, who bring accusation against you and me on the basis of our sin. Christ has dealt with our sin, so because the principle is dealt with, he disarms the opponents. And the scripture says elsewhere, he, he leads captivity captive. The word here for triumph is dead interesting. You know, some, of, some of the words in the, in the New Testament are, are just fabulous. He destroyed the opponents as a wrestler triumphs. He destroyed the opponents as a wrestler triumphs. He overpowered them, in other words. So those that would stand in accusation against us, he annulled their power through his death. Indeed, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2, through death he destroyed him that had the power of death. Not through resurrection. Don't misquote the text. Through death... He destroyed him that hath the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Through death. So by entering into death, by entering the devil's realm in the perfection of his manhood, he annulled the power of Satan. So you're free. Don't look so pleased about it. But it's absolutely true. And what the apostle does here is just emphasize again and again and again the significance of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We owe everything. Everything. All that I am and have are all down to the work and ministry of the Lord Jesus. So effectively, therefore, look at the next verse, verse 16. Therefore, do not any, let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to religious festival, new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So you've been brought into a relationship with the living Christ if you've come to trust in him. Then live in the, in the joy of that. Don't allow legalism to destroy the freedom into which Christ has brought you. It might seem very um, 
significant to obey uh, annual festivals, holy days, and new moons, monthly festivals, and Sabbath days, which are weekly requirements. But you're not bound by those particular emphases anymore in the areas of eating and drinking, in the areas of religious observance. Quite the opposite. You've been brought into a yieldedness to the will of the Lord Jesus. You've been brought into a situation where you, you live in such a way that Christ is real to you and the things which you, which you do in your life is because you love him. And because of the changes that he, that he has brought in your life, you live out your life on that basis, not by keeping rules and regulations. And so you meet together on the first day of the week because you love the Lord Jesus. And you come together to worship because you love the Lord Jesus. You don't come because somebody tells you to come. Well, I hope you don't. But becomes you, you recognize you, you have this freedom to come and to, to be before him. And in Christ, the whole of life becomes sacred. There's no division between uh, sacred and secular. So whenever you're engaged in your everyday life, uh, doing whatever it is that you do, you're doing it as unto the Lord. And he has been brought into the reality of your experience because he is who he is. But there's something else here. And that is the, the dangers of mysticism. The dangers of mysticism. Not just the dangers of legalism, but the dangers of mysticism. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head and from the whole body, from whom the whole body is supported and held together by his ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. So what's he talking about here? He's talking about being led astray by false teachers who appear to be very spiritual. There was always in ancient religion um, a thought of mediation. So you regarded higher beings, spiritual beings, as being significant mediators, whether they were thought of as angels whether they were thought of as extreme gods, you know, the, the Greek pantheon, where you had Zeus and all these guys all fooling about with men and making fun of men and so forth and so on. Um, so whenever Christianity came into this realm, there were those who thought, well, oh, there must be other mediators between God and men. There's got to be someone else that we can bring in. Um, we'll worship angels. And that'll be really good to worship angels because they're heavenly beings and, and so forth and so on. Nonsense, the apostle says here. He says you lose connection with the head and you lose everything. You begin to have a view of um, using other intercessors. You lose everything because you are connected to the head. And the importance of this is, is immediate, isn't it? Uh, if I recognize that I owe the Lord Jesus everything, then whenever I'm talking to him, it'll be on the basis of understanding that he is in relationship with me personally. You know, he's, he's my head. He's my boss. He's the one to whom I relate. He is the, the one who has worked between God and man. He is the one mediator, the man Christ Jesus, as the Bible says. 
somebody else comes along and says, well, you can't get in touch with God directly and you can't pray to the Lord Jesus yourself. You need somebody else to pray for you. That's nonsense, isn't it? Because if I have a connection with the head, then my responsibility is to the head. So I introduce something else and make it sound all holy and great and everything. It's, it's just not true. And the apostle is saying here, don't let anybody deceive you. You know, don't, get, can, don't let people who have lost connection with the head double-cross you in, in an understanding or trying to help you to understand. Justin Marcher, who was one of the early church fathers who lived about A.D. 76 through to um, about 34. This is what he writes. Many spirits are abroad in the world, and the credentials they display are splendid gifts of mind, eloquence, and logic. Christian, look carefully and ask for the print of the nails. Let me read that again. Many spirits are abroad in the world, and the credentials they display are splendid gifts of mind, eloquence, and logic. Christian, look carefully and ask for the print of the nails. You died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Why do you submit to the world's rules? Touch not, taste not, handle not. Why do you think it's so significant, so to do? As someone who has lost connection with the head, we need to recognize this so carefully. Barnabas, that great Christian consoler, who was constantly exhorting the disciples, said this, cleave to the Lord. Cleave to the Lord. The word is superglue. Really, it is the the most uh, significant statement as far as attaching yourself to someone that can be imagined. Cleave to the Lord. Super glue yourself to the Lord. Forget everything else. Recognize that the cross of Christ, the death of Christ, the love of Christ, the grace of Christ, the joy of Christ is all down to him. And in his name, commit yourself to live closer to the Lord this week than last week. To get to to know him better to enjoy him more, to involve him more in your life from day to day. Enjoy the connection that you have with the head and then you'll recognize error when it arises elsewhere. I hope this has been helpful. But the, the, the perspective of this is that since you died with Christ, seek those, to the principles of this world, seek those things which are above, for Christ dwells at the right hand of God. One day you're going to see him. Maybe we're going to see him a lot sooner than we think. What a day that will be. What a day that will be. When there's no more space between us. When our minds are not veiled anymore. 
And the glory of the Christ appears to us as the rising of the sun. Be good to get to know him better here, wouldn't it? And we'll recognize him further when we're there. God bless you. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we want to thank you for the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. How little we appreciate the great work which was done on the cross. So many things which hang upon it and so many things which develop from it. And we praise you that new life in the Lord Jesus comes through faith in him. And this morning we avow our trust in our Lord. We say to you, we we love you because in Christ we have got to know you. And we do pray that as we live in the joy of this, our Father, we may just express our awareness of you through our living. Now, there will be those things in our life which are changed because we know you and those things in life which are enhanced because we know you. But there will be the development of a, a knowledge of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for each one who's here this morning and for our friends and neighbours and ask that in your goodness we may live Christ to them. Through his name we pray. Amen.